Thank you for listening to Bakersfield Observe, the podcast with Richard Bean. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Centric Healthcare and Premier Lighting. Welcome to Bakersfield Observe with Richard Bean, a podcast for and about Bakersfield and Kern County. Richard's guests are newsmakers, influencers, and personalities who address topics of interest to you and your neighbors and your community. The discussion is fast, informative, and always civil. Now, here's your host, Richard Bean. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to episode eight of the new Bakersfield Observe podcast, recorded right here at American General Media Offices, off right off Highway 99, right here in downtown Bakersfield. The idea behind this podcast is simple. We're trying to provide a forum for our community, the Bakersfield community, to gather to discuss the issues that confront all of us. We'll tackle the issues head on. We'll do so in a respectful and civil manner. This podcast airs weekly, and it will complement the work of the Bakersfield Observe blog. That is my blog, which has served Kern County for the past 15 years. You can access this podcast via Spotify or wherever you access your podcast, or you can get it right there on Kern radio.com and finally none of this would be possible without our sponsors and i'd like to thank centric health and dr bridge bombi of bakersfield for becoming our first sponsor for this bakersfield observe podcast today we have a special guest we're featuring a friend of this podcast a friend of this radio station a man no stranger to bakersfield and making news Mr. Jeremy Adams. Welcome, Jeremy. Richard Bean, how are you? I'm doing terrific. I want to introduce you now. Jeremy has completed one of his life's greatest quests. My words, not yours, Jeremy. A provocative new book that examines why today's students have rejected the norms of yesterday, the norms of the society that so many of us grew up with, how technology has allowed our students to look inward, not outward, and what that means for them their futures, us, and our country. This is a book every parent desperately needs to read. This is a book that explains so much about our children, and it is authored by a man who has spent his career in the classrooms teaching those children, teaching your children, and teaching our my children, and seeing them, observing them close up in a way that gives him a special insight into the priorities and their behaviors, perhaps more, I would argue, than their parents themselves. A little bit of background about Jeremy. Jeremy is one of the most decorated educators in the state of California. In 2018, he was the first classroom teacher inducted into the CSUB Hall of Fame. He has been a government and history teacher at Bakersfield High School since 1998. He's a proud graduate of Washington and Lee University in Virginia, and he has written on politics and education for the LA Times, the Washington Post, Sacramento Bee, Bakersfield, Californian, and numerous other places. I want to welcome Mr. Jeremy Adams to the podcast. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. I, I'm wondering what award do I get for being your first repeat guest? This is look. This is uh, let's let's be honest. This is your first your first kind of non 
non-academic book? Whatever. Yeah, my other books were very uh, kind of specialized. There were teacher books about pedagogy uh, and about teaching methods and things like that. Really not a, you know, really not a popular book. Mm-hmm. Uh, those books are really meant for, you know, teacher trainings and professional development, uh, maybe some teacher conferences. But this is definitely my first uh, attempt to write a, a broadly popular book. Uh, and, and, you know, sometimes they call these soapbox books because uh, they are bu- books where you get on your soapbox and, and you try and loudly declare, look, there is a profound and colossal and titanic problem in our society that we're not paying attention to. And, and everybody look over here. Let me explain what's happening. And uh, I, you know, I've been trying to get here for, for literally decades. So this is a really exciting time. Well, for congratulations. Me. Look, I've been around a lot of people who, who, who have written books. I know it is a grind. Man, uh, I mean, uh, particularly in today's society, uh, where book publishers are not doing as do, do as well as they used to. You got to get an agent. How long have you been at this? Oh, it, it's been abs. It has been years. Uh, you know, like I, as we, we've talked earlier about this, at some point, maybe my third appearance in the future will be about the process of getting a book published. But you're absolutely right. Uh, getting a book published by a huge national publisher when you're not already famous is is profoundly difficult. Right. Um, you know, I, I recently looked at the New York Times bestseller list for nonfiction. Well, it's Mark Levin, who's probably the biggest radio show host in the country now that uh, Rush Limbaugh is no longer with us. Uh, Matthew McConaughey, Oscar winner, Barack Obama, former president, mm-hmm. Wall Street Journal reporters, New York Times reporters, Harvard professors, and here I am, Jeremy Adams, high school teacher in Bakersfield, California, uh, <laughs> and and in order to be taken on by a large publisher, you need an agent. Well, agents, they only get paid if you sell a lot of books, mm-hmm. and the easiest way to sell a lot of books is to be famous already. And my my children forget my name sometimes. Uh, my students, after a year, are like, I had, That'll humble I, you. I had that guy at one point. What's his name again? So it's it's been uh, a Mount Everest climb uh, to get this book published. I was, uh, frankly, emotional yesterday because, you know, you get, you know, I, I get the book about two or three weeks before the bookstores do, and I was able to open it up. And uh, again, it, it, it is... Not to use too fancy of a term, it is my magnum opus. I think yeah. that everything I've ever done in my career um, has led me to the writing of this. Um, I think that the most important book um, I think today should be written about young people. Uh, and I think, frankly, uh, that perspective should come from somebody who's in the classroom. Uh, I think that you know, conventional wisdom in our country has told us that if you want to understand the biggest threats facing the nation, then listen to the politicians and the pundits, right? Mm-hmm. Listen to the Instagram influencers and Twitter trendsetters. But I would tell you that none of them have a front row seat to American decline the way that we do, mm-hmm. we teachers do. You know, And, and I, I'll tell you right now, a lot of us in the trenches today of the American classroom want to wave our hands and yell out, hey, something's not right here. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of things that we need to be talking about, but of course, you know, we don't have a show on MSNBC or Fox every night. Yeah. Uh, you know, we don't have podcasts like Richard Bean with, you know, a million listens. Uh, and so so it's, it's, it's a really important message. I think, uh, I think a classroom teacher is the messenger, but now we got to get the message out. Absolutely. I, I was remiss, and I didn't even mention the name of the book. The name of the book is Hollowed Out, A Warning About America's Next Generation. We're chatting with Jeremy Adams, longtime BHS teacher, uh, professor out at uh, CSUB. How Hollowed Out. Yeah. Well, uh, talk to me about choosing that as a name, because that, that's, that says a lot. Yeah. I mean, when I, I see that title, and I go... This book is going to tell me there's a problem. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, let me start off a little bit with with where it came from. I mean, what's interesting is, of course, 
the genesis of the book is anecdotal. I mean, you, you know, you're in the classroom. Um, you know, and I've been in the classroom. This is now my 23rd year. And, and I know on a podcast you can't see people, but I know I look way too young to be a person uh, who's been teaching for 23 years. But uh, with a year and a half of COVID, I feel like I've been teaching for 40 years. But, you know, of course it begins anecdotally, Richard, right? Where you, you know, you, the, the thing that makes the classroom magical, the thing that makes it uh, a, a wonderful life. And, and if I were to go back to being 22 again and I, I, I you know, make new decisions, I wouldn't make this a new decision. I, I, I think that the life of a, of a teacher is, is, is a privileged perspective, and I think mm -hmm. that it's a beautiful life. You know, I always tell my students, the definition of a happy person is somebody who looks back and is by and large happy with the decisions they made, yeah. or at least the mistakes they made they learned from. And that's, yeah. that's me, right? So yeah. I'm, I'm one of these classroom romantics. Um, I'm a diehard, bleeding, you know, bleeding heart believer that what we learn in the classroom can change our lives for the better. And so you get to know your students, right? You really get to know their stories. Uh, I mean, and that's, that's one of the things I don't particularly like about distance learning is, you know, for the last year and a half, you know, they all have their cameras off. Uh, it's just a name. I don't know who they are. And, and, and kind of the, the, the majesty and the magic of the classroom has been deadened because of that. But for most of my teacher career, you really get to know the kids. And the last five to 10 years, they start to say things and you're like, well, that's, that's different. Mm -hmm. Or you look at the way they live their lives. You look at the way they spend their time. You look at their beliefs about their country or about family uh, or about religion. Um, and then you kind of start to notice little things like, uh, you know, one thing that I've noticed the last two or three years is it used to be if you had a minute or two after class was over, you'd say, okay, everybody just, you know, hang out, see you tomorrow, mm -hmm. do whatever you want. And what would immediately happen? Talk, 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 talk. Right. Now, Silence. They're on their phones. They're on their phones. Really? They're like self-medicating. Silence yeah. reigns. They're not gossiping. They're not flirting. They're not talking. They're not running around. Now, it's kind of nice that you can yeah. pacify them so easily, right. but it's not good in the sense that that engagement, um, that, that, that linkage between one another is an important element of growing up. And, you know, one of the things I've noticed with my daughters is you have these birthday parties or you, you know, you go to, a, uh, you know, an end of the volleyball season pizza party and you look at all the girls and it's quiet. Mm. It's silent. And so, you know, you start to notice these things in the classroom. And so you think, well, hey, maybe, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just my, my kids. Maybe they're just kind of a quirky. And then you talk to your fellow teachers and they're like, no, no, the, we're noticing these things too. Mm -hmm. And you think, well, maybe it's Bakersfield High School. Maybe it's my school. And, and then you talk to other people in the state. No, it's, it's happening. Rich, poor, mm -hmm. you know, black, white, um, AP, down to kind of general. I mean, all, and so these trends, and so you realize it's not just you. And then in the book, and this is what, um, this is what I really loved about the book is then you start to, so it starts anecdotally and then you, but then you start to do the research and you realize that the trends I'm seeing are happening everywhere and you start to see some real changes in the country and uh and and again at the end of the day and we can really flush these things out but a lot of our young people live their lives completely untethered to adult values adult expectations adult behavior um they live their lives very isolated this is a very lonely very isolated generation uh, you know, a lot of them spend nine or 10 hours a day on their phone, which means they're not dating. They're not going to the movies. They're not reading books. They're not going to football games. They don't know a lot about religion. They don't particularly love their country in the way that you and I would, would think about it. Uh, and if, when you look at rates of depression, uh, suicide, even they are tragically going up and the way that kids want to socialize 
is no longer face-to-face. -face. So all of these changes I've noticed in the past five to 10 years are gonna have long lasting consequences. And so I wanted to write a book about it because I think that the very things that make our lives worth living, our friendships, our faith, mm -hmm. our community, the things that we love, these are the things that they are not attaching themselves to yeah, anymore. That, that's disturbing. And it's hollowing them out. You know, loneliness is a theme that keeps that, that, that seems constant in the book in, in, in terms of how younger people are living their lives without the interaction that perhaps we grew up with, or even to the point where you say they're not even having sex or dating in the, in, in, in the way that other generations did. Before we get to that, I, I'm going to have to ask this. I'm going to be a little bit provocative because this is indeed a provocative book, and it's an important book. And it, it talks about, uh, it's an ambitious book because it, it, it talks about a generational change in which we haven't seen before, at least I would argue. Why are you uniquely qualified to write about this, Jeremy Adams? I'm, I might run into it. And uh, let, let's be honest, you, you were, we had you on this podcast talking about critical race theory, and there was some blowback from people of university status who didn't come out and say it, but my reading was, uh, th gee, that was interesting listening to Jeremy Adams, but why don't you talk to a real professor, somebody who really studies these things? Do you get that a lot? Uh, well, in, th in that instance, it hurt my feelings <laughs> a little bit, to be mm -hmm. honest. Um, but as, as far as this is concerned, I mean, I, I do feel that teachers stand at a really unique intersection of our society. Um, and at this intersection, we observe all kinds of things that uh, kind of make us feel like we're, you know, kind of Nostradamus or soothsayers or fortune tellers, right? I mean, all the time, you know, you'll see an article in the Atlantic or the New York Times or Newsweek where the, the article is talking about kids addicted to their phones or about uh, all the anxiety that kids feel or about um, the fact that they're not dating. You know, you, you mentioned, you know, half half Richard of all 18 to 35 year olds don't have a romantic partner. Um, you know, and so, you know, you notice these things, you know, one thing that I've, I've talked a lot about and it's not in the book is the sense of humor of young people today mm. is, is very, it's very different. It's much more ironic. Mm. Uh, it's much more digitally based, I mean, lots of memes, mm. lots of, uh, vines. Do you, do you know what a vine is? Uh, no. Yeah, okay. It's like it's like a five or six second clip, you know. Uh, and and I feel like I have a really good sense of humor. Okay. I mean, now I know saying that you're funny is probably like saying, hey, you know, I'm good looking because good looking people don't have to tell you they're good looking. But I feel like I really have a, a good, robust mm -hmm. sense of humor. Uh, I know that you know, you know, I, I I feel like my students would say, yeah, Mr. Adams' class can be fun and we laugh a lot. Um, but you know, I'll tell you even their sense of humor, right? You start to notice all these kind of embryonic mm. changes. Mm. Uh, and, and we stand at the intersection of this. And teachers are constantly saying to each other, you know, I've seen this. I, I, I saw this two or three years ago. You know, you're a little late to the party, Mr. National Journalist Pulitzer Prize winner. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so that's why, you know, I feel I'm uniquely qualified, no more so than any other high school teacher, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I don't think I'm special in that way. Um, but the other thing is I do think my longevity uh, I, I do think that, you know, I haven't been here for only five years or 10 years. Uh, when you, you have that you, kind of... You have taught at BHS for it, basically you're entering your second generation. I mean, if you consider a generation oh, yeah, this will be 20 my, years. Yeah, this, yeah. Is my, right. this will be my 23rd year. Yeah. Uh, and I am, I am deep in the driller tradition, right? I mean, I, all four of my siblings went there. My dad was a legendary teacher there. And I, I graduated, Richard, in June of 94 as a student. And I was teaching again in August of 98. Okay, so, you know, I, I took, I had a blink and I was back on campus. And 
so yeah, this is my 23rd year. And I think that that kind of trajectory of a career gives me a little bit of a privileged perspective where I can say, you know, things are changing. And then, but this is my broader point I was making a minute ago is, you know, you think, well, is it just me? I mean, you know, I know that one of the things I know people are going to say, the, the, the naysayers, if you want to be critical, oh, okay, well, every generation thinks that the right. next one is going to ruin right. everything. that's what you'll hear. Yeah, he's just being crazy. Well, my parents said the same thing my about... Parents, yeah, exactly. Right. My right. parents said the same thing. He's just a curmudgeon. Now, a curmudgeon is 70 years old, not 45, I'd say that. Uh, and I'm not being cranky. Um, I really do feel like there's a qualitative change in the basic questions of how do we reach human fulfillment? Mm -hmm. How do we live deep and meaningful lives? The Greeks used the term human flourishing. And I'll tell you, Richard, I don't think human beings today are that much different than human beings 100 or 1,000 or even 3,000 years ago. That's why we still read the Greeks. That's why we still read Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. It's because at the end of the day, the thing that makes life worth living, the good things, right? That what the Greeks called the good life, that hasn't changed because we're Americans in 2021. Mm -hmm. It's the same essential things. It's, 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 it's friendship and faith and, and connections to things that you believe in. And so those changes, I believe, are profound. And I think that they are recent. And I feel like teachers uh, who are in the classroom and who've been teaching about two decades or so can really identify them in a way that other people don't. So I, I do feel uniquely qualified. Uh, and that's why I say, and maybe this is a little bit of hubris, uh, maybe a, an epic sense of destiny, but I do feel like I am uniquely qualified to, to write this book. And it's not writing a book, by the way. I see it as sounding an alarm. Uh, okay. I see it as waving okay. my hands Fair and enough. saying, hey, everybody, right. I don't care if you're liberal, conservative, whatever. This concerns us because young people with these values and these behaviors are not going to be fulfilled. And our democracy, by the way, this project, this extraordinary project of self-government cannot survive with the values that the young people that I'm observing have today. It cannot. And we already see the decay. Mm -hmm. We already are witnessing it. Does, it, does that make sense? And yeah, that's absolutely. Why, yeah. And you, you are unequivocal uh, about that. As a matter of fact, you wrote that, uh, you said in 17, 2017, that you had a front row seat to the American decline. And then you write, it's not just that they lack knowledge that you might expect them to have. It's not just that they appear to have no interest in acquiring wisdom. They seem bereft of an understanding of what it means to be fully human. That's a hell of an indictment. What do you explain that? Yeah. Uh, first of all, it's not meant as an indictment, but more of a, of a warning. Um, but, but I will say that when... You know, when, when we were growing up, and I think when most people are growing up, you, you daydream, right? I mean, you dream about the man or woman that you can become someday, mm -hmm. right? And you have this, I mean, this is what I think is extraordinarily American. This is why I love this country, is that no dream is, is too big for anybody, right? Uh, huge dreams don't just belong to certain classes or certain races or certain religions in this country. Uh, ambition, aspiration, reaching, being in the arena of, of real achievement belongs to everybody. And when you imagine what that person's going to be when you're 30 or 40 or 70 years old, uh, a lot of the things that young people want for their lives uh, are the things that aren't necessarily the things that make, uh, that tend to lead to fulfillment. Mm -hmm. um, and even the adults uh, who you, you talk about know that they are acquiring some of these, these bad habits. So, you know, when you, when you look at things like um, you know, marriage, you know, 18 to, as I said a minute ago, half of 18 to 35 year olds don't have a romantic partner. Uh, the desire for marriage and fam family is in free fall. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, one in five millennials say they don't have a good friend 
in the entire world. Uh, you know, young people say that they want a boyfriend or girlfriend, but they, they don't necessarily want to get married. Um, they want to have a pet, but they don't want to have a kid. They want to travel, but they don't really want to buy a house. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with traveling or just mm -hmm. having a boyfriend or a girlfriend, but it, it's not, it, the anchor is not as deep. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, absolutely. And, you know, you say that you want to do, you say you want to be charitable, um, and that's great, of course. I mean, these are all good things, um, but it, it seems like there's, you know, there's a commitment, but not the kind of thick commitments uh, that that really tend to give our lives meaning and purpose. Let me give you an example by that. So I think of the things. I mean, I mean, I'm in the middle of life. I, I don't know if you know this, but um, there was a study a few years ago that talked about you know what are the happiest years of life and what mm -hmm. are the you know and and I guess for some reason 44 is the most unhappy year, right? Unhappy? Unhappy, yeah, unhappy. Because in your, when you're 44... Not when you're 64. That looks pretty good when you look back at <laughs> well, 44. Well, yeah. Yeah, but, but the idea is that when you're 44, you're still in the middle of raising kids. Yeah. Um, you've probably peaked at whatever your profession is. If you've been married, you've probably been married for a, a while, right? It, it's Realize not, you're it, not going to be CEO. I'm yeah, not going to be president. Exactly. You're yeah. not going to be Jeff Bezos. Right. You're not going into space. No, you know, you're not, you're not going to be somebody who's, who's uh, in the history books. And... You also, you know, you're, you know, for somebody who's as fit as you, you probably don't understand this, but for me, your metabolism slows down. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, I only have, I can only sleep on my right side because mm -hmm. my left shoulder hurts all the time. <laughs> uh, you know, you know, and, and, uh, and so you get to your mid forties and, and it, it, it's still hard yeah. and you start to realize things, um, about yourself, uh, that, that aren't necessarily, uh, positive. Um, but I would tell you though, Richard, that the things that define me are the same things that stress me out. But that stress is good, right? I mean, I worry about my students, but being a teacher gives my life meaning. I, I am always frustrated with my children. Being their dad, well, it's the greatest thing in my life. Mm -hmm. My wife, has been, we've been married for over 20 years. She, I don't know if you know this, but she doesn't go around saying, Jeremy, you are so amazing. <laughs> I just love you so much, you know? And yet my marriage is my ballast, my soulful ballast. Yeah, you know, right. She's my high school sweetheart. So my marriage, my children, my job, loving my country, um, believing in the message of this book enough that I'm willing to endure uh, literally decades of rejection. I always tell people who want to say, you know, who contact me and say, well, I want to write a book. That's fine, but just be ready for low self-esteem, yeah. right? I mean, it, it, it's, it's a up at dawn siege of constant rejection and failure. Um, and, and that's that's just to get the agent. That's just to get the agent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not even to get the contract or even to sell the book. Uh, and, and yet these things, that's what I'm saying is these things, yeah, they're hard. I mean, I think my students look at me sometimes and they see how frustrated I are with my, with my, my children or with, you know, with, with, uh, you know, my, my, my country or how my students are, 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 are not performing. And they see, man, this guy is tired and he's ragged. Right. That's true. But those commitments make my life meaningful. Right. I'm glad I have those kind of thick, deep, meaningful commitments. Right. And I think one of the problems we have is that young people misunderstand what, like, what, why freedom leads to a meaningful life. Traditionally, freedom is the freedom to attach yourselves to places and causes and people you believe in. Right? You don't have to join a church if you don't want to. You don't have to marry this person if you don't want to. You don't have to live in that place if you don't want to. The beauty of America and the majesty of America is that you're free to believe and act and speak and go wherever you want in accordance with your highest aspirations. Mm -hmm. But it's meaningful because you are attaching yourselves, right? You're right. making those commitments. Well, imagine a life where you don't make those commitments, right. where you, you don't really have a religious tradition. You don't really like your country. You, you really don't think marriage is particularly... Okay, hold that thought, because yeah. I don't want to get back into that. Yeah. We're, we're talking about a lot how, how 
this is we're, we're looking at something and i think jeremy would argue and i happen to agree with him something really fundamentally different is going on with the generation let's talk a little bit through through your lens jeremy about why what is it what is it about this generation which is different what is i mean how 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 do you weight the role of technology and, and why are these kids so disassociated and not part of what we might we might consider the American dream or at least embracing that, you know, their view of this country and their role in it is so different. What's well, different? That, that, that is a great question. Huge question. Um, I would say two, two or three main things. The first thing is you identified technology. Uh, and I, I really think that people who are not in the classroom, uh, especially people who maybe aren't raising teenagers, it is difficult, Richard, to explain the enormity of how much social media and the devices have displaced other things in life. And those things are typically meaningful. Give me things. a good example. I'll give right you a great now. example. Right. Reading. Right? Reading. Reading. Okay. Uh, you know, in, in the 1970s, uh, a majority of Americans, uh, teenagers, excuse me, a majority of teenagers read every single day. Um, now, uh, 16% of the country says that they read every day. And one of the most upsetting statistics I came across, one of the great things about writing this book is, you know, you have all of these things that you identify and you wanna write about, and then you do all the research for years. Um, but one of the most damning statistics is, you are more likely to be reading a book at 13 in this country than 17. Hmm. And we all know why that is. That's because there's what only- What happens between 13 and Because we all know there's only so many hours in the day. And you and, become a teenager and you and, get interested in other things. And, and exactly, and you get displaced. And I saw this happen in my own household. Uh, I'm going to kind of do a humble brag. But that itself isn't, isn't news, is it? I mean, we were, I mean. Yeah, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Because. It, or is it how they're being. It's how, because like, you know, it, I, right. I know that, that but people are going to say, well, hold on. We had TV. Yeah. We had radio. But you don't live on TV. And you don't interact with TV. And you don't get your sense of self-worth with TV. You know, this kind of, kind of hopscotches over to my second point here, which is. The fact that so many young people live their lives in a way that they're not in connection with adults the way that they used to be. I mean, so think about 100 years ago, you would have mom, you'd have dad, you'd probably even had some grandparents. Mm -hmm. And human beings are creatures who learn by example. And we are either improved or depraved by the examples in front of us. Well, think about it. Young people today, the adults in their life, many of them, if you do have a two-parent family, a lot of them are working a lot. Um, there's this phenomenon called distracted parenting where the parents are on their phones all the time. Guilty, by the way, mm -hmm. right? My wife, sure. we're guilty of this. Distracted yeah. parenting, which by the way, not to go down the rabbit hole, distracted parents tend to uh, discipline their children faster, not as justly. Uh, kids constantly feel like they're not being listened to by mm. their parents. And that- I can see that. I can see that. I have a whole section in the book about the fact that the traditional dinner table here's a story for you i remember a few years ago i talked about uh kind of the, the 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 family dinner and the kids looked at me very oddly and they're like what do you mean i said you know the family dinner at night you know where you guys sit down and mm -hmm. eat they don't do that that is that is a relic of a bygone era. The idea that mom and dad are going to sit down and you're going to sit. Are you there. saying that if you had 30 kids in a classroom, how many do you think will have a sit down? Day? I think it's going to be very different from school to school. Okay. I would tell you a majority of my students absolutely do don't not do sit that. down at night. I, I mean, they, they don't do it. And I, and I said to them, well, then what do you do? Like, how, what do you guys do for dinner? Right. And they all said, well, we, we get our food and then we go back to our room. Yeah. And our parents will sit down on the couch and they'll watch TV. I mean, you know, what's interesting is 
a lot of people think this book is an indictment of young people. It is not. It is an indictment of you and me. It's an indictment of what we've done. We've let them do that, right? Our children, like my kids, they tried to pull that on me. And you know, they say, you know, dad, I have a lot of homework because they know I care about grades. And they'll mm -hmm. say, Come on, can I just take my food to, to my room and, and, and study? And I let them get away with it until I would walk into the room and they're sitting there watching YouTube mm -hmm. videos. Well, right? Jeremy, while I deal with your indictment here, I mean, what my defense would be, I didn't know what technology was. I thought maybe this would be a good thing. Number one, I could, yeah, I give them a phone. They can stay in yep. touch with me. I'll know where they are on Friday night. Uh, they get, uh, they need to access the internet to get their homework assignments as, as parents. I mean, are we, uh, are, are we to be, uh, uh, condemned here because we or or, how, or it, no. did, did it just evolve? I mean, no, how do, I, well, you I know. think well, first of all, you, you point out something that's really interesting, which is when you look at the advent of all these devices, right? The phones, the iPads, all of that. You know, it was interesting because kind of the intelligentsia of the country, you know, all the people who uh, write easy bestsellers, um, you know, they all believed that there was going to be a real kind of socioeconomic gap that all the young kids mm. who had these devices were going to just thrive academically yeah. because they could watch the videos yeah. and they could kind of yeah. turn in homework and all of that. Mm -hmm. And now it's interesting because the parents who have the time, who are watching them, you know, and I know now it's take the devices away. Mm -hmm. And the parents who aren't there, they're the ones giving the, the devices over and over. And, and again, I'm not smart enough to tell you the difference between causation and correlation, but we all know that people who spend a lot of time on devices tend to not be very happy at all. Mm -hmm. right? We all know that it's, you know, the more you're on your cell phone, the more likely you are to be lonely and isolated. Um, and so it's kind of gone the opposite way. Mm -hmm. And my point is, that's fine. You thought that, but now understand that that's not what's happening. Um, and, and so young people are growing up in a way where they are being in, like mom and dad have been displaced by YouTube sensations, mm -hmm. by Twitter trendsetters, you know? By, by, and that's why, let me tell you another story about my students that, that is shocking. Um, so when I first started teaching honors government uh, and started teaching out at CSUB, you know, my students would frequently say, and this is natural, well, my mom says this about this issue, mm -hmm. or my dad thinks this about that issue. And that's natural, right? Because mm -hmm. that's, you absorb the values and the worldviews of your parents. Isn't mm -hmm. that what we're trying to do? Yeah. Is right. give them a sense of For this sure. is right, this is wrong, these are good goals, these are bad goals, that's a destructive behavior, that's a good behavior. That's what we're doing is trying to get them to absorb good values. And you know what? Nobody talks like that. I, I never hear anybody talking about my mom thinks this, my dad thinks this. Really? They're constantly talking about what somebody on TikTok yeah. said. And by the way, they're, they're listening to each other, right? They watch, they're, they're at school all day, right? And they're around young people. Mm -hmm. Then they go home, mom and dad are, are, are on their devices, they're working, they're watching TV, they're distracted, and they're watching hours and hours and hours of TikTok and YouTube and all of these videos from other young people, which are not adult values, adult, not adult expectations. And I'll tell you, just as a political science teacher, most of the stuff you see on, 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 on uh, social media it's not about how great America is. Let me just put it yeah, that way. Right. It's not a, you know, look at the extraordinary element of this country. Look at all the progress we've made. Look at our, our founding. Look at, uh, look, at the, look at all these extraordinary statistics about human progress. No, 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 no. It's, it's, uh, it is a cesspit of negativity about almost every element of the country. And they absorb that and they bring that into the classroom. And that's why, you know, people wonder, I mean, you ask your question, why don't they love the country? Why would they? Because what everything they're learning about it is how, how rotten it is. That's their worldview.
right? And, and that's why, you know, I, I will have parents come up to me at graduation. I had one this year who said, you know, thank you for being kind of a counterweight mm -hmm. to all the garbage that they are, you know, algorithmically, algorithmically consuming for hours a day on their phones. And is, by, yeah. is, is this what, the, you know, is this part of the argument of critical race theory in, 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 in that it, 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 it might teach or, or, or present this country in a way uh, that is, is, is not something to be proud of or not a work in progress, or not, uh, but to be something that's ashamed of. Right. Well, I, a few things. Uh, I think broadly that's, that's correct. So now, I think that the average person who doesn't like critical race theory, they are not reading deep texts of, you know, a Harvard law professor from the 1970s. They're not reading Hegel and Marx and, and, and you know, the Frankfurt School. Their worry is that we already see a generation of young people who are not particularly patriotic. And their worry is if all you teach them are all of these horrendous episodes in American history. And if you take the next step, because, I mean, you can't deny our history. It is not good. There's a lot, there's a lot to not be proud of, mm -hmm. right? And, and, I, and by the way, maybe this puts me a little bit more on the left. I think there's nothing wrong with learning about Mormon. Like I said in our last I, podcast. I have no problem either. Yeah, I, I didn't know anything about Tulsa. I didn't know anything about Juneteenth. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I know about that. Right. I, and so if young people want to know more about some of the, you know, less, less laudatory elements of our history, they should know it. But the pivot we make, the dangerous pivot that I think people are worried about is to say that is the real America, right? Slavery is the real America. Jim Crow is the real America. Um, segregation, the KKK, white supremacy, that's the real America. And why would I be proud of that? I mean, that's why, you know, 20% of, of millennials say they see the flag as a symbol of hate. And I think older Americans would say that's the problem, though, is that it's good to know these things. But you can actually become more patriotic by knowing them because then you see what we did about it as a country, right? right? And that's right. that's the majesty of America is this belief in individual and societal agency. We, the people, we, we, the demos, the people of this country, we decide what we're going to be. Right. And look who we are today. Look at the profound, colossal, multicultural success that this country has become. Look at who wants to come here. Look at our economic and look at our cultural hegemony in this world. People want to come here. People buy our products. People wear our clothes. People watch our movies. People study our founding. We should be proud of that because we have come a long way. So, you know, the silent generation, you know, people like my father, you know, they, 94% of them are proud of, of our history. Mm -hmm. And it's not because they're proud of the bad elements. They're proud of where we have come. Right. Like, look at the extraordinary trajectory of this country. So, is, I, I, is, is that, but is, is that a result? Can you do that? Can you do that when you're young? Can you appreciate the arc of history uh, as much when you're 17 as when you're 84? Absolutely. You know? Like, I, I mean, Absolutely. I mean, I remember, like, if you took Jeremy Adams and you put him in a time machine and you told him when he was at Franklin Elementary or Emerson Junior High that race relations in America are going to be much more poisonous when you're a 45-year-old man, I would have been absolutely shocked by it. Mm -hmm. uh, young Americans, uh, you know, we all know that they do not know much about civics and history. I mean, you, you, I've written extensively about this. All of the surveys show that this is a generation that knows so little about American history. And yet, I, 
I think it was kind of a consensus when I was growing up is, yeah, there have been awful episodes in our country. I mean, beyond awful, but things are getting better. You know, Martin Luther King had that famous quote where he says, mm -hmm. the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice, mm -hmm. right? And that idea that, that the arc of history is going towards the ideals of the 14th Amendment, the ideals of Martin Luther King's dream, the ideals of the Declaration of Independence, the ideals of Jeffersonian liberalism, I had absolute faith, well, Richard, they... in that trajectory because I understood where we came from. And I, I thought, hey, we would, you know, and then again, I, I, I didn't vote for Barack Obama, but I see him as the, I mean, I quote him in the book more than anybody else. I don't know if you noticed that. Mm -hmm. um, I see him as the quintessential American story, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and, and, I, and that progress that had been made. Um, I, I, I had no, no doubt that it would continue, and yet it hasn't. Well, hasn't. then who's to blame for that? If, if this isn't an indictment on the kids and this is an indictment on us as parents or the system or by, by an, an extension, how did we end up as a generation who doesn't appreciate? To, because if we're losing this sense of American exceptionalism, for lack of a better phrase, the f you know, a lot of people, idea, lot of people hate that term, by the way. Well, yeah. okay, but, but yeah. the idea that, that, that we live, that, we, that if you live here and you are part of this country, that you are part of, of, of something really exceptional because there's no other place in the world like it. There's no other experiment in a, in, in, in a robust republic like there has been. There's been no other place who has erred so grievously and done something about it and come back. Yes, yeah. I mean, uh, but how did they lose that part of it? How, well, the, the, and how are is, they, why are, why, are, why are they focusing on the negative? Well, well, first of all, that's what they're being exposed to. I mean, that, that's what they see on their screens. I mean, and frankly, uh, and again, I, I don't want to take shots at university professors who have PhDs. I have a master's degree from CSUB, so maybe I shouldn't be fi fighting the heavyweights, but I'm sorry. I get a lot of former students who go off to college and come back and will act as if I have, it's not that I've lied to them, but as if, you know, you talked about how great America is, but you know, really, is that the real America? Yes, it is the real America, kids. Yes, it is. Yes, history is difficult. It is ambiguous. It is It is. Uh, it is a story with, with lots of, of ideals, but also a lot of reality that, that is something that we shouldn't necessarily always be proud of, but you have to own it. But this idea, you know, this idea that, um, that that's the real America, um, that's, that's really what they're being exposed to on their screens in the universities. That's what they're learning. I mean, as I said in the book, they're not studying a lot of, of, of Homer. They're not reading, you know, the Bhagavad Gita. They're not reading the Sermon on the Mount. They're not reading uh, you know, they're not reading a lot of Shakespeare. You're, you're reading a lot of Foucault. Uh, you're reading a lot of postmodernism. Uh, you're reading a, lo a lot of stuff that, that does not necessarily look at the country uh, in, in a, in a, in a kind of a celebratory way. So, you know, w when that's what you're learning in the classroom and that's what you're seeing on your screen, we reflect that. Right. I mean, we reflect that viewpoint. Um, we all do uh, in a sense that like, we, we acquire a certain lens and the lens they're given is is not one that is going to be particularly thankful. Um, and, and the other thing I would say, and this is kind of good for them, is I do think they would say, you know what, we're tired of waiting for our ideals to be lived out. Oh. Right. We, we don't you know, we're tired of it. You know, we, we don't want to see videos anymore of George Floyd. Like, or videos like, we don't want to see that anymore. We don't want to see the gigantic income, gap, income gaps between black and white Americans. We don't want to see the education gaps. We don't want to see the healthcare gaps because Richard, they're real. You know, and, 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 and critical race theory 
came to be because in the 1970s, Bell looked at all the strides of the Civil Rights Era, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the 24th Amendment, and said, that's not gonna be enough. That's not gonna be enough. We need to acquire a different way of moving forward because if we're really going to have a country where we have equal opportunity, we have, we have to look at it a little bit differently. Um, and that's where you get this big debate today about, you know, should we be racially blind or should we be racially conscious, right? Because right? in my era, judging somebody on the basis of race saying well i think you're this color and therefore you need help that was called racism right right that was you know i'm I, still I'm, struggling with yeah, this I, I, one okay you've changed the rules on me yeah, and, like. and now yeah. it's like no 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 you have to understand that historic groups that i mean you can't have and i and this is the this is an element that i, I do believe you cannot have 230 years of slavery and 100 years of jim crow mm -hmm. and even modern things like redlining and mm -hmm. the school to prison pipeline and and unfair sentencing for african americans for marijuana possession versus white americans you can't have these things yeah right and then expect it to be gone overnight right? i mean so so this is where i think sometimes the right is not they're not is not sensitive enough mm -hmm. right i mean that that let's not pretend that history does not have a profoundly real effect mm -hmm. on people's lives today so when people say we should be race conscious, that's what they're saying, is that to a certain degree, a lot of these inequalities, these persist because of things that have happened long ago. And, and I, I don't think that, that's not a controversial opinion. Because um, if, if it's not that, then what do you think it is? Yeah, right, right. right. We're talking to Jeremy Adams here. Jeremy, Jeremy we're talking about the new, uh, the generation. The book is called Hollowed Out, a warning about America's next generation. And you've used a lot of words to describe this group. Uh, that they're lonely, that they don't have a love of the country, that they lack confidence, they lack social I interaction. And the one thing you said, which was uh, hit me like a ton of bricks here, you say, you write that we seem to be rearing a generation of students who are incapable of realizing true happiness. And I read that and I had to stop, Jeremy, because if we're raising well you know that as a parent and i know that if i raise an unhappy child and they leave my house at 18 that child's probably going to be unhappy for his or her whole life because they have spent their formative years being unhappy yeah. with me talk to me about this unhappiness this, this is Where one of those, that? yeah this is yeah. one of those things that when you come across the the, the data when you come across and again, these are changes in the last five to 10 years, right? These are, these are things that are not, you know, this, is, you know, this isn't something that's been materializing for decades. When you look at the sudden deterioration in levels of happiness and well-being for young people, it is shocking. Um, so one-fourth of all Americans say that they have poor mental health. But consider this. Mm. Between 2007 and 2017, Richard, teen depression, are you ready for this? Teen depression rose 63 percent 63% in 10 years suicide in children 10 to 24 jumped 56% in 10 years and I guarantee if you go back and you look at those numbers after COVID goodness knows so you look at the anxiety mm -hmm. you look at the self-harm you look at this the suicide uh, you look at the fact consider this in 2012 I think I alluded to this earlier in 2012 Half of all teenagers wanted, when it talked about hanging out with your friends, they would prefer to hang out in person, right? Mm -hmm. Go to a pizza parlor or play outside and throw a football. Just by 2018, that had gone down to one third, right? So when you look at those statistics, 
I don't know why everybody and their sister isn't asking, oh my God, what are we doing? Like, what's changed? What's going on? I mean, that alone should be an indictment of of the world that we're raising our children. The don't you values- think we're, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but okay. it, it seems to me like as adults, we're experiencing some of this too because of COVID. Absolutely. You know, yeah. when I don't see my dear friends for six months, you know, yeah. literally, I don't see him on a bicycle. I don't see him anywhere. I'm like, I, f- I feel, I, I feel like I, I'm missing something, right? And you're talking about, you're talking about a generation. One of the words you've, you you use repeatedly in here, which I like. You say the chief danger is disengagement, right? A what you call a radicalized, atomized form of individual of individualism, a cult of the self, of the almighty I. Mm-hmm. That says it all, doesn't it? I mean, aren't we, I mean, that doesn't that speak to a lot of the politics of today, that it's tribal, you know, that it's my group, my interest, my, my race, my look, my skill set, whatever, we're, 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 we're not connecting to larger groups is that is that what you're trying to say absolutely right i mean there's a there's absolutely a balkanization that is taking place uh in in the in the country itself and and this ability or this unwillingness to connect to other places and other people is 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 a is really a lot of the hollowing out taking place so let me give you a good example of where i said earlier in the podcast you know sometimes i notice something in my classroom or my school and i wonder is it a, a broad Phenomenon. Well, when I was at BHS, I mean, driller football, we all know that is the place to be on a Friday night. And I've noticed in the last four or five years, I'll go to a football game and there is no problem getting a seat. No problem getting a seat. Mm. And so, you know, I asked my students, why, why aren't you guys going to the football games? My my own children don't particularly want to go to the football games. And they sound like 50 year olds. They're like, I'm tired. It's the end of the week. (laughs) And I said, well, don't you want to hang out with your, I say, don't you want to hang out with your friends? And you know what they say? Oh, I do. You do? Yeah. Where do you guys go? Well, I don't leave my house, but I'm still hanging out with my friends. That lack of connective tissue is what is what we're talking about. You know, I need my friends. I need my school community. I need these this this this. The, the digital connection doesn't provide that. Absolutely not. And 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 not only that, by the way, but there's a lot of anxiety that gets broadcast on social media when you're a teenager. About FOMO. I mean, you know, do you know what FOMO is? Mm-mm. The fear of missing out. Oh, right. You know, I mean, you, you, right. a lot of young people, if they want to be petty, they'll have a get-together, they'll have a party, and they'll un- just intentionally not include somebody. And anybody who's a parent knows has had this happen oh, to their that's kid. That's the worst. And then your yeah. kid's scrolling, and all these kids are together, and you weren't invited. Wow. I mean, think about that. I mean, there's a, you know, there's a, a whole section of the book where I talk about the kind of the real toxicity of social media is that it teaches you that a moment is only valuable if other people are, are commenting and liking and oh, experiencing okay. it. Okay, say that again. I like that, this. Say that, that again. That, that social media teaches that a moment is only valuable. It's so only if worthy. I post something, it is only the value is determined by other people yeah. whether they like it or not. It, or, it's, right, it's like, or That's why like, you take these big moments and you post them. And then people say, oh, well, that's exciting your child's going right. to Berkeley, Jeremy. Oh, that's exciting that, um, you know, this book is coming out. You know what? I should be excited without what you think about it, Richard Bean, mm-hmm. or my other, you know, <laughs> yeah, Facebook yeah. friends. Now, right. by the way, I love my Facebook friends. Right. But, but, and so what happens is a lot of young people, the moment 
something important or interesting happens, their first thought is not, let me enjoy this moment with the people who are here. Mm -hmm. It's let me broadcast this somewhere else and let other people, some of which I don't even know, tell me that it's a valuable moment. And then Richard, if enough people don't like it, or if people say mean things, then it ruins the moment. It's absolute unfettered toxicity. Wow. Because think about the moments that are meaningful in your life, right? You think about getting married, you think about having children. Now, yes, those are kind of, you know, those are big events, but think about all the things that went into that marriage that were private beforehand. Right? Think about all the private moments that led to somebody going away to college that weren't broadcast. Right. And, and when you have a generation that believes that a moment is a moment or an event is only valuable because if enough other people like it, th that's going to screw up your mental health. Oh I mean, because, I mean, we've all made posts before that people, you get a lot of reaction to that you were surprised at. And sometimes you post something and nobody cares, and you're like, well, that was disappointing. I thought a lot yeah, of people right, would care about this. Right. And I feel that. Right. Well, take that times infinity, take it to the depths of forever, and that's how a teenage psyche works today. And it's stressful. You can never leave it, Richard. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I was growing up, if I had a if I had a bad day at BHS or I was fighting with somebody, I go home. I don't have to deal with it till tomorrow. Guess what? They are never home. They're never off. Mm -hmm. They're always on. They're always being judged. They're always scrolling. I mean, and by the way, think about this too. A lot of our kids are living with a single parent who's working their tail off to provide for them. And they're not, you know, they're not able to kind of be emotionally supported. I mean, think about it this way. Imagine you're a boxer and you get up every day and, and you're boxing. I mean, kids are going to school. They're trying to do their best. It's like boxing, right? And they're taking the blows and they're giving the blows and they're trying their best, but sometimes they get hurt. Well, what happens at the end of a round, Richard? What, what do boxers do? They rest. There's and who's there for them? Their, you know, their team and their the team ring. is there, yeah, right? Right. What would they give them water? Yeah, right. Give them they, water, they give them a pep talk. Coach them. You okay. know. Imagine, not imagine. This is our kids. Imagine if you go to that corner now and you have none of that. Imagine you don't have the water. You don't have the pep talk. All you have is that dang phone <laughs> telling you about how you had a crappy day. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. And that's how a lot of our kids are living their lives. No wonder they are miserable. Oh, you know. It, by, by the way, the, this book is extraordinarily well written. Uh, Thank you. I, I, I take that as a separate compliment, compliment, by the way. I, I'm just struck by some of these passages to follow up on what we were just talking about, to, to, to bring in that string a little bit further. It says, you write this, In the past, people oriented themselves by looking to the heavens or looking out to the world or looking down to their work, but never, never did they find a path of fulfillment by merely gazing into the almighty mirror of the frivolous self. Yeah. Is, is all of this because can you lay, you use technology as a reason on, on likes on a post. Is this all because of technology? Because teenagers, the fact that teenagers are frivolous and self-centered is not new. Right. No, right. but, I, but right. I would tell you, and again, I don't know how, how wonky and philosophical we want to get here, but I do believe that, you know, our young people are growing up with a worldview. You know, what Nietzsche, you know, Nietzsche said that we all have these horizons of meaning, which means that we all have our orientation from somewhere. And what's, what's, I think causing a lot of this is that when you live in a world where there is no objective truth, uh, when you live in a world where all that matters is not how you choose, but the fact that you have lots of choices, mm -hmm. um, when you have a world when there is no right and there is no wrong, uh, when you have a world where you don't believe in it, I mean, this is, I mean, I would tell you 
You know, we think that there are all these deep divisions in this country on race and class and politics. I would tell you that the most fundamental, profound, and monumental divide in this country is an existential divide. You have people in this country who believe that there is an objective moral order. There is right, there is wrong, there is good, there is bad, there's a good way to live your life, there's a bad way to live your life, and much of your life is going to be dictated by how much you follow those rules, right? That, that we don't make up. I don't get to decide that murder's wrong. I don't get to decide that being honest is better than lying, right? And yet you have a, an entire generation who believes in a kind of radical subjectivism. Uh, they believe that there, there are no moral absolutes. They exist in this kind of postmodern malaise where there is no truth, there's only perspective. And, and think about it, Richard. If there is no truth, if there is only perspective, then what do I know that you don't know? Mm. We're, now your students and your parents are on equal footing. I try and tell my daughter, Lauren, socialism is not as good as, as the free market. And she'll say, well, I just don't feel. I mean, this is the era of feelings, Richard, mm. right? Mm -hmm. 700 years ago, you had the age of faith. 300 years ago in the Enlightenment, you had the age of reason. Now you have the age of feelings. And if I feel that something is true, if I feel that you're offending me, if I feel that you're saying something that I don't like, then it really doesn't matter because there is no objective truth anyhow. My feelings are the only barometer of my reality. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is that you as a parent, you as a teacher, you as a university, you're not there to improve me. You're not there to ameliorate me. You are there to accept me for as I am because there's right. because as I am at 17 is no better than who you are at 57. Mm -hmm. Think about what that does to relationships. Mm -hmm. A teacher and a student should not be on an equal footing in that way, right? A teacher should say, no, I know things that you don't know. Yeah. I have wisdom to impart to you. A young person today can say, I just reject that. I, I think that your worldview is outdated. And now, now they have this kind of postmodern vocabulary to completely undercut what you and I believe, which is this kind of objective moral order where there is truth, there is justice, there right. are facts. Mm -hmm. And so if you believe that, there, I mean, look at the way, I don't know if you got to the section about religion I did. at all. We're gonna talk about yeah, that. Right? Um, that is a, a paradigmatic example of, of how they believe in this kind of postmodern subjectivism and it, and it affects the way that they look at everything. I mean, the, again, it, I, I would tell you that that divide between do you believe in an objective moral order Versus people who believe no, it's kind of a moral relativism, even a nihilism, right? That, you know, that, that, I mean, I see this on people on both sides of the political party. You can give them facts, you can give them evidence, and they won't accept it no matter what. Right. Why? Because their feelings, right? Their feelings, their emotions override the rational fact. Right. And and that, that, I think, is poisonous because then there's no reason to change, there's no reason to improve. I mean, look at the way that colleges, you know, look at applicants now. Right? It used to be you went to college to become a better version of yourself, right? right? And I will tell you that there's no question to me that if you go and you read Homer and you read Plato and you and and you read James Baldwin and you and you you read uh, Tolstoy and you learn from these extraordinary professors that you're going to be a qualitatively more substantive person at 22 than you were at 18, right? You want to be molded, you want to be changed. Mm -hmm. But nowadays, it's no, 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 just accept the kids as they are. Accept them, just affirm right. them, right. right? It's a more therapeutic way of looking at education rather than an academic way of looking at education. Does that you, make sense? Yeah, absolutely, and you talked a lot about kind of the rejection or, I don't know if it's rejection, but the ethos of the Judeo-Christian teachings that we all yeah. grew up with. And, and where does that go? And now that 
and, and uh, some of this is, is certainly called for. I mean, I grew up in in a public educational system which was obviously very Eurocentric. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. I knew I learned all about the the. I, I didn't learn about the Tulsa riots, but I learned about the Irish potato famine. Right. Yeah. You know. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but what do we lose when we start? You know, yeah. re- rejecting. I mean. We, 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 the, the teachings of, of ancient Rome and Greece, as you uh, you point out, those are those. I would argue those would always be rele- relevant to some degree. Yeah, well, I, I would say two things. Uh, the first thing I'll, I'll start off with the classical learning is that uh, you look at what the 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 men who created this country. What did they read? What did they know to be able to do what it is they did? Mm-hmm. Right. So that's and if you want to renew a country. It's nice to kind of understand that, mm-hmm. that, that those insights, the way that they looked at themselves, the way they looked at the country was informed by these books, these ideas. And, and it's really hard to renew the values of a country, Richard, when you don't know where those values came from, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and so, you know, one of the things that I do in the book is I do bemoan the fact that we really don't know much about the Greeks. We don't know about much about the Romans, even though those democratic values, those mm-hmm. classical Republican values, they were not born ex nihilo. They didn't come from nothing. They came from a very specific place and time with certain values and certain perspectives and certain actions. And we took the greatest ideas. I mean, you look at the back of the $1 bill, it says, Novius Ordo Seclorum, a new order of the ages. Well, what does that mean? That means that when we created the American Republic in 1787, we took the best ideas from history, the ideas of the Greeks and the Romans and the Enlightenment philosophers, and we created a new order of the ages. We should know where the, our ideas come from. You cannot understand America or what we are and what's unique about it if you don't understand the, 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 the origin story. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that bothers me is that if you don't think there's anything special or unique about the country, why bother to go through the arduous business of renewing it, especially if you think that it's all bad. So I, I do think it's really hard to renew the values of a civilization when you aren't studying where those values come from. But the second thing about religion, who start off with a story. A few years ago, uh, we were, it was right before spring break, Easter break, whatever you want to call it. And somebody said something about Easter. And I thought to myself, I don't, do they even know what Easter is? So I said, do you guys know what Easter oh signifies? Boy. Oh boy. I mean, do you, do you even know what it, what it is? And maybe, and I teach bright kids, by the way, okay? Maybe half understood that it was about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Really? Yeah. Um, to say that young people are abandoning religion at a pace unparalleled in the history of Western civilization is still an understatement. They don't, it, again, I'm a public school teacher. It's none of my business. I believe it. it's none of my business. If you, have, if you are a person of faith, if you are a Muslim or a Christian or a Jew or an atheist or a Buddhist, I don't give a crap. What bothers me is how ignorant you are about it. That you don't even, like students will say, well, I don't believe in any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know what that stuff is? That stuff is this idea of an objective moral order, that there is, that mm-hmm. there is right. I mean, the entire grammar of religion, they don't like, because what is it? Commandments, yeah. right? It's yeah. sermonizing, it's liturgies, it's do this, do, don't do that. Here's the path to, to a good life. They don't want to hear it because yeah. they believe in this kind of radical individualism where I get to define what's right and wrong. I get to define what's good and bad. Not you, Lord. You don't get to do it for me, right? And so you and I think of 
free will and freedom as in, well, we're free to obey it or not obey it. They see freedom as I get to create my own right yeah, and wrong. Right. That right. is radically different. Right. And so the fact that they, they, don't even under, they don't even know much about organized religion is what bothers me. Because if you look, even in the world today, in an increasingly secularized world, so many people walk in this life as meaningful because of their religious faith. Mm. That doesn't mean you have to buy into it, but you should at least understand it as an option. I mean, right. you should under, I mean, you should understand. I mean, how can you read the sermon? How, how can you not consider the Sermon on the Mount? How can you not look at the noble truths of Buddha? How can you not look at the, this, this beautiful notion of karma uh, in, in Hinduism and Brahmin? I mean, mm. you should know these things mm. because there are options for you. There's more than just this 2021 postmodern worldview. We read, another thing they don't do, we read because it makes the world bigger. It makes our possibilities broader. And religion is very good at giving you a sense of, look, you don't just want to connect to a place. You can connect to the ultimate, right? for the reason why you exist, for, for that which created right and wrong, that you're not an accidental byproduct of the universe, that you are a product of a loving God. Now, I'm not saying you have to be, believe in that, but that's an option. Yeah. That's an option. And you should know the story behind that option before you reject it. Right. Does that make sense? No, I don't care it, if you reject no, it. No, no, but, that, but you should it does know make it. sense. But what, what do you, you, you describe a generation growing up where conversation, you know, families don't eat together. Nope. Uh, Not like they Kids are absorbed in their phones. Uh, a lot of kids aren't even dating. They don't go to football games. It's a very inwardly looking uh, generation. And you, you also note, you say, uh, you talk about helicopter parents, but you say young people have successfully created a space where adults cannot intrude. Yeah. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is the, I would argue this is the first generation in history who has successfully created a space to grow up where adults don't have any access to where they are and what they're doing. So I had this interesting conversation with my middle child who, uh, by the way, my, my oldest child gave me permission to always talk about her in these interviews. Uh, I said, you know, Lauren, I'm going to be doing a lot of uh, media here in the next month or so. Do you mind if, you know, because we're so different and we, you know, again, a lot of people think I'm writing this just as a teacher. Man, I'm also writing this as a dad. A lot of these frustrations are not Mr. Adams, they're Jeremy Adams' father. But my middle child had an interesting insight. And she said, she said, Dad, we grow up with these technologies. If you don't, you will lose every time. And you talk to young people and they will tell you, we, we communicate in a way that you know nothing about. Yeah. We can look at things and hide them on the phones in a way that you will never be able to spot us. There was something a few years ago, I think it was called the mosquito ring, where younger ears can hear a ring, older ears cannot, right? And these, are, these kids are smart. I mean, this is a smart generation. There is nothing fundamentally broken about these kids. This is, in many ways, I admire these kids. Um, but but my, my broader point here is that imagine, like, you know, imagine growing up and you're a teenager and there was a room in your house where you could do anything you wanted. You could say anything, you could post anything, you could look at anything, and you knew nobody was ever going to catch mm -hmm. you. Well, they've done it. Yeah. They've been able to do it. They have spam accounts. They have something called Finsta, where you have your main account. And the main account, like, I will follow my children on social media. 
but that doesn't stop them from creating another one where they post edgier stuff that they know that they can hide themselves there. They can automatically delete things. We're it's like it's like Jeremy and and, and Richard playing doubles against Federer and yeah, Nadal. Right, there, right. There's just it's just no you know that, that dog's just. I don't even know hunt. the language. Yeah, we don't know. even know the right. language. Right. And there was a I put this in the book. There was a a, a dean. In, in I think it was in Arkansas, and he created a little bit of a Facebook phenomenon because he posted this thing about, he says, I am a dean, and I look at filth, filth. And I'm not even going to talk about the thing. I mean, the kinds of vulgar, disgusting things that these kids are looking at and, and, and emotionally and mentally consuming all day, it's on their phones. They're seeing it. They, they are inheriting their value system from somewhere, right? And it's not church. It's not you and me. It's from somewhere. And the dean was like, parents, you have got to do a better job. Like, it, and he's like, and I, we give them back to these parents and say, hey, this is on your kids' phones. And they are shocked mm -hmm. because these kids have done, you know, they've done what nobody else has been able to do. They've created that room, that ecosystem, that space where adult values, adult behavior, adult condemnation, we can't get there. We can't get there. And, and that's where they spend their time. Think about that. So, I mean, we talked about, you know, you asked the question an hour ago, what is causing this, Jeremy? Uh, I would say, you know, the two big things is first is this kind of cult of radical individualism and a misunderstanding of freedom as, uh, you know, freedom should be the ability to connect to things bigger than yourself. They see it as, a, as the freedom to not connect. Mm -hmm. and that's making them miserable. And I would say the biggest thing is they live their lives untethered to adults. They, mm -hmm. they, they're not around us. And even in schools, I, I mean, I, let, let's, I'll indict myself a little bit here. In schools, there's, nobody talks about tough love anymore. Mm. It's all, it, 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 a lot of education now is about being supported. Mm -hmm. It's about making sure you feel safe. Now, these things are important, by the way. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, we, we've actually had a debate about this. We have, you know, where you're like, Jeremy, you kind of believe in that social emotional stuff. I do. Mm -hmm. I do. I think when kids come from difficult backgrounds, they need to feel supported. Mm -hmm. But to me, that's half of the journey. They feel supported so that then you can be tough, mm. right? Then right. you can soar. Whereas a lot of younger educators, like the whole purpose of school is to make them feel safe. No, mm. nobody has ever come back to my classroom 20 years later and said, Mr. Adams, thank you for being soft on me. <laughs> thank you for not having high expectations. Thank you for letting me get away with cheating. Absolutely not. Mm. And so kind of a, a therapeutic view of childhood is no good for them. Yeah, we're just, we just are there to let them do what they want and self-medicate in their phones and don't challenge them. That's in the long run, we all know that that's, that's a road to misery. And again, they are miserable. This is not Jeremy Adams. This is the New York times. Absolutely. All right. Let's look forward. Uh, Jeremy, we've covered a lot, a lot of the issues you, you, you wrote the book hollowed out a warning about America's next generation, which is, is a warning, not an indictment, as you say. And it's a warning to, to, to parents as well. Well, uh, well, as the rest of society, all right, you have watched this thing happen. You've said several times, you said, look, I've, I, I have seen the changes. It's been in the last five or 10 years. You've been in the classroom 23 years. What's the next 10 going to bring us? Well, I mean, I, I have every expectation that Hollowed Out will become an international bestseller. Of and course. Everybody will read it and we'll kind of change our ways a little bit. Um, <laughs> you know what? I, I, I would like to think, you know, that at some point uh, there has to be there has to be a day of reckoning uh, for these problems. I mean, they're just too obvious, I think, to too many people. And now, where I where I'd like to feel like I'm 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 unique 
is the ability to explain why it's happening, to understand the postmodernism, to understand the technology, to understand uh, the fact that, that, that young people are alienated from, from adulthood and adult values. Um, you know, Ben Sass, the senator from Nebraska, wrote a book called The Vanishing American Adult. I mean, I'm not, you know, other people are seeing, you know, mm -hmm. elements of these things. Um, so 10 years from now, I, I, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know how much more extreme we can get than the fact that they are growing up isolated, depressed, uh, and, 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 and friendless. I mean, again, it, it's, the, the problem is I think a, a lot of, maybe, maybe I, I think a lot of teachers see it, uh, but I think people who maybe don't have young children, I mean, you look, you know, the kids use the word shook. You know what it means to be shook? No. It's like, like you're, you're, you're you know, like you're shocked. You're kind of like upset. You, you've read the book. You look shook. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And, it, and it's there to kind of be an eye opener. So, right. um, you know, I, I think that I think that there has to be a return to some sense of of look, this is what it means to be a kid. This is what it means to be an adult. This is a great country, but an imperfect country. Here's why patriotism doesn't mean that the country's perfect. Here's. These are the things that tend, I mean, just, I mean, it used to be that wisdom, we look to older people, we look to teachers and pastors and, and older friends for wisdom, because what is wisdom? Wisdom is knowledge about how to live a good life, mm. right? And, and wisdom is, you know, it's, a, it, it, it's kind of bits of knowledge about, you know, these are important relationships. These are important values. These are important things to do in your life. It's important to read books. It's important to travel. It's important to have good friends. It's important to forgive. It's, it's important to be compassionate, right? It's important to kind of disperse all of this wisdom. Well, they're not getting the wisdom. There's no trough for them, right? They are literally soulfully emaciated at this point. Mm. And we need to fill in the trough. Any advice for parents who come to you and go, Jeremy, I read your book, man. I'm shook or what? You know, I'm, I'm yeah. like, what, what should I do? Yeah, a few things. Number one, the adults need to start adulting. Uh, you know, one of the things is, is the adults have to, you know, there is this obsession in our country with, with youth, mm. with being cool, with being edgy, with being like the kids. Stop it. Just mm -hmm. stop it. I don't need another cool mom or cool dad. I need a grown-up mm -hmm. to raise men and women of substance. So stop infantilizing mm -hmm. everybody and everything. Mm -hmm. Be an adult. Be proud of it. And, and, and be there. Be present. Right? I mean, that's why I say uh, th there might be kids who are at home, but they're still alone because mm -hmm. mom and dad aren't there. Right? They're in their room. They're distracted. You know? I mean, we're... Even the adults are, are suffering from this. There's a, I put a part in the book about, uh, a part in, in the book about how uh, there was an article in the Atlantic about this guy who admits that he that social media has ruined his ability to focus on anything. And when he watches shows, he watches TV shows on fast forward <laughs> because he can't just let it unfold. Uh, another story uh, from my classroom. I noticed a few years ago that and I'm not a big movie watcher but sometimes in summer school if we'd have a few minutes left we'd watch a show or something and I noticed about five or six years ago the kid I would look out there and the kids weren't watching the movie now when I was growing up you get to watch a movie that's a dang oh yeah day. it's that's, like hey that's a freebie it's a freebie yeah. now they're all on their phones I'm like why don't you watch the movie and they're like it's you know I, I it's not enough it's not enough stimulation wow. right so the adults are like that too yeah. we're distracted right. all the time right right you know we're on our phones at dinner we're watching Netflix. We're, you know, we now spend more money in this country on eating out than we do on groceries. Now that says something Whoa. profound and negative yeah. about where we're putting our time. Right. So yeah. the number one thing is the adults need to start adulting. The second thing is we need to understand that this country can be great without being perfect. 
right? Perfect. Love that. That is absolutely. And and, and that, and that's where I think 90% of the country is. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't think, you know, a lot of right people on the right are afraid that critical race theory is going to teach that America is evil and you should hate the country. I think most people on that side just want to be honest about the country and where we've come from and to understand that there are in, you know, kind of enduring, kind of enduring problems. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think people on the right, um, you know, I think have genuine worry about the fact that if you, if you don't believe in the country, if you don't believe in the proposition of the Declaration of Independence, because we are a creedal nation, we're a nation based on a creed, what Abraham Lincoln called a proposition, because we're not all the same color, we don't speak the same language, we're not all rich or poor, we're not all the same religion, we don't have a same, we don't, you know, we're not subjects of a king. There's got to be something that yokes us together. There's got to be something that makes an American an American. And it's a proposition. And if you teach young people to b- disbelieve in that proposition, if you teach them that it's a lie, if you teach them that it's really just a front for, for, for all of these evil principles and don't believe in it, I think the right is correct to say, then what are we then? Yeah. Then what are we? Right. If, you know, we fight in wars together and I'm in the trenches with somebody who comes from a different part of the country, a different race and a different religion. Now there's nothing to connect us. What are yeah. we fighting for, man? Right. There's nothing. There's nothing we have bonded. If you teach that kind of truculent hatred of the country, if you indict everything about it, and and the third and last thing I would say um, is that in education, and I kind of touched on it a minute ago, we need to be more academic and less therapeutic in education. Less therapeutic. Yeah, and, and I right, think that right. uh, I think a lot of the things that we've done in the last 15, 20 years are good. I mean, I I do think that it's ridiculous to suspend a student the first time they get mouthy. I think it's ridiculous. And I do think that that disproportionately falls on poor students and minority students. And I say good riddance to policies like that. I think it's good to have social emotional support. I think it's good that we feed our kids. I mean, if Richard, how good are you going to learn if, if if you're hungry? I mean, I think these are good things. Well, sure. I, and I don't right. apologize for that. Right. But I, I do believe that that should be the starting point. I don't think that that should be the totality of, of what we're doing is is, is, is just emotional scaffolding all day. So, you know, I, I, those are the three things that, that, that I argue in the book um, that I would say um, – going forward but but I, I really do it's, it's a powerful book it's it's it's, it's a absolute must read i gotta let's let's wrap this up jeremy with you asking and, and, and you address it in the book let's be fair here i don't want to people listening to this think we're just you know we're just beating up on on young people no it's again it's quite yeah. a quite an accomplished group right i mean this is this is an extraordinary generation i mean that's and i may, I, I think i make it very clear in the book i have an amazing amount of affection for for my students and former students. Uh, you know, the one thing that's so interesting is, you know, last summer when you saw all of the protests, right? And I'm not, I'm not talking about the more extreme kind of taking down, you know, Abraham Lincoln statues, mm-hmm. but people who who saw or Charlottesville, when people are out there marching, you ask, what are they marching for? And they will tell you equality, mm-hmm. a belief that the law should treat us the same the belief that police, it shouldn't matter what race we are when we're being policed. Mm -hmm. Those are American values. That comes from a classical liberal culture that we get our rights directly from nature or nature's God. We do not have our rights because of a writ of royalty. We do not have, we are not subjects of a king. We do not believe in the divine right. We believe that we all have equal rights because of our essential humanity. That belief system that, that they're out there marching to, it's thoroughly American. And that's what drives me nuts is that you guys hate the country and some, when you say, you, you know, you see it as a symbol of hate and yet the very values you say you're for, 
that is America. That is the country. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of, uh, it, 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 I find it maddening. And so to a certain degree, they're the most American of American generations. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can look in the past and say, how, you know, go read, go read, uh, you know, Frederick Douglass's Fourth of July speech about, you know, the hypocrisy, you know, that your Fourth of July is for you. It's not for me. Right. And I understand that. I mean, the, our hypocrisy is deep and it's long. But the fact that we've tried to narrow that gap between the ideal and the real, that's yeah. right. That's that's what the young people understand. And I love it. Here's the other thing. They don't think small. They're not afraid of big problems. They're really not. I mean, you know, we look at politics and we're like, ah, it's just too hard to solve that problem. They're not. They're not. I mean, some people look at their kind of weird love of socialism. I mean, there was a poll a few years ago taken between 18 to 29 year olds and socialism was more favorable with this generation than capitalism. And people like me were just screaming their head off. But I think you could interpret that as saying, because they see income inequality, they yeah. see poverty, they right. see right. environmental degradation. And they say, we can do better than that. We can fix this. We can fix yeah. this. We don't have to have poverty. We don't have to, to roast the planet. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Here's the other thing. They're willing to sacrifice. They're mm-hmm. willing to change their diet, mm-hmm. right? They're willing to say, I'll pay a little more <laughs> to buy local. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I love that. They're not, what drives them mad is they'll say, look, what is the most pressing issue in the world? Climate change. What is the th- one thing the United States has not led on very well? Climate change, mm-hmm. right? And so that idealism, I love that. Mm-hmm. And, and and they're willing to sacrifice and stand up for it. There's a lot of good there, too. A lot right. of good there. Hollowed Out is the book, a warning about America's next uh, generation. Jeremy Adams, this is your first podcast. Thank you for uh, choosing Bakersfield Observe, the podcast, to come on. You got a lot more. You're on the marketing tour for the book now. Yeah, I have yeah. A, in the next two and a half weeks, lots and lots of stops, lots of talking, lots of conversations, uh, but none of them will be with a friend as good as you. So thank you so much. You're very kind. And where would we get the book? Anywhere you want. Go to Amazon, Amazon go to Russo's. Russo's has Russo's, and that comes out August 3rd. Okay. Uh, now, if you want to pre-order, I highly recommend you go to Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, it's going to be anywhere and everywhere. My, I have this weird kind of, it's kind of a weird dream, but I've always thought it'd be neat to have a big book in an airport you know, and one of those absolutely kind of, you know, kind of going on a flight. Like, oh, hey, there's yeah, my right. book. So, um, so you yeah, it's, it, it's, you take an extra one to the airport. You just stick it. Just in leave the front. it there. Just leave it there. Yeah, let exactly. It go. You exactly. do your own marketing. Exactly. Yeah. So, well, thank you so much for having me on. It was thank an honor you, Jeremy to Adams, is the author. Hollowed out a warning about America's next generation. Be coming out August third. You can pre-order now, Jeremy. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Bakersfield Observe, the podcast with Richard Bean. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at. Centric Healthcare and Premier Lighting.